That is really important for me and that is really where I think humans need to enhance our capabilities of imagining the next order implications. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how human minds create value from information and author of the book Thriving on Overload. Every week I speak to incredible people who share how they use unlimited information to create massive value and keep ahead of accelerating change. If you want to learn more about this valuable topic, go to thrivingonoverload.com, which includes podcast episodes and transcripts, excerpts from the book, articles. You can sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to help you improve your habits. And there are also details on the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which guides you through the journey of amplifying your information productivity. That's thrivingonoverload.com. Building on my work on Thriving on Overload, I'm also focusing on the theme of humans plus AI to help massively augment your productivity using artificial intelligence. If you want access to a raft of resources, frameworks, guides, and tutorials, just go to humansplustechnology.com. If you find this episode useful, please do take just 10 seconds to hop into iTunes or whatever app you're using to listen to this to give the podcast a rating or a quick review. These are all free resources that would be massively helpful to me to make this project feasible and also help others to make this easier to find. On this episode, we learn from Roger Spitz. Roger is an international best-selling author of the four-book collection, The Definitive Guide to Thriving on Disruption, the president of Tech Essential, which works on climate and foresight strategy, the chair of the Disruptive Futures Institute, and a frequent keynote speaker globally. Roger was previously a global head of technology M&A with BNP Paribas and has two decades of leading investment banking and venture capital businesses. You can find more on Roger's work at disruptivefutures.org. In this episode, Roger shares insights on the future of strategic decision-making, thriving on disruption, resilient systems and thinking, decision-making for climate impact, beginner's mind, and far more. Keep listening to learn from Roger's Fabulous insights. Roger, delight to have you on the show. Amazing to be with you, Ross. So one of our many common areas of interest is the future of strategic decision making. Mm -hmm. So why do we need to be thinking about the future of strategic decision making? That's a very, very fine point, right? Uh, what's changing? Because we're humans, we have a brain, we make decisions. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of things, I guess, which I know you're also very um, tuned into. And for the anecdote, before I answer, thriving on disruption is meeting thriving on overload. So that those two elements, disruption and overload, are contributing in a way to having to consider decision making differently. So we box it into a few things. I think firstly is just simply that the exclusivity of decision-making is no longer necessarily just for humans. So insofar as computers can make decisions, whether they understand the decisions, whether they're imitating the brain, it's almost a separate debate insofar as the outcomes of what they might do have implications on decisions which may not be taken by humans. So the first thing is really that, that delegated authority and um, which we call tech existentialism. What is technology and existentialism? What is that world where we no longer have that exclusivity? The second thing is the decision-making value chain itself. If you think of, you know, you 
get information, you know, like the like a OODA loop, you know, you get information, you get signals, that's kind of descriptive. So the computers analyze that, it's data analytics, computers have been doing this for decades, fine. And then there's a bit more predictive. So that's algorithm augmented, machine learning, pattern recognition, you can process tons of, you know, drug discovery, all the things you know, you can test and process millions and billions of things and decide what could make sense for a particular drug and that which humans cannot do. So that's, you know, predictive. It's kind of um, supporting decision-making. Now, the thing that interests me kind of most is that value chain where decision-making is moving to prescriptive by machines. And that prescriptive is really deciding the preferred option. It's really having that kind of agency or at least authority with action triggers to make autonomous decisions. Now, your focus, thriving on overload, how much information is there to process? You need support for that. How good is the support you're getting with, with computers? And so that's that's kind of two elements. Um, the exclusivity that's being delegated and the moving up the value chain. Now, what happens is that if you look at, we quite like to look at the framework of, you know, obviously very helpful for sense making and responses to different environments, Dave Snowden's Kinevan framework. And he divides, you know, yes. obviously for, for your listeners, um, you know, what is complicated and what responses for complicated. So complicated, you can rely on experts, you have known and unknowns. Uh, it's a more kind of linear, predictable environment. Um, cause and effect kind of are, are, can be anticipated ex ante. And then complex, it's different. It's non-linear, so it's less predictable or not predictable at all. It's like the Amazon River. You know, if you change something, how does it affect everything else? Complicated. The examples are how do you spend, how do you send a, a probe to Mars and all that. You can do the calculations and get expertise, how to fix a plane and that. So in this complex environment, cause and effect can't be necessarily determined exactly. It's an emergent discovery mode, trial and error. Um, cause and effect can't be established necessarily exactly. As we said, it's nonlinear. Um, the multiple drivers of of change can't necessarily establish just A or B, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's a lot of the real world. And more and more in a world which is hyper-connected, which is technological, where things are basically very much playing off each other and can be self-reinforcing, the speed of which can be extraordinary. If you look at Silicon Valley Bank, you know one of the interesting aspects to it, and we can put aside the many aspects of the hundreds of case studies and the post-mortem, but one specifically I think is interesting to, to our discussion is it's probably the first time that social media and and information is the way it is. We didn't have that in the 2008 crisis. And we're instantaneously, if one VC mentioned something to a customer or startup or whatever, that was pretty much amplified within minutes to tens, if not hundreds of millions or potentially billions of people. So that instantaneity warp speed of many, many things basically mean that the decision-making and the process in that complex environment is, is different. So when you add all that together, my worry and my concern in terms of what does it mean for the future of decision-making is that machines will continue their course, will hopefully have 
improved ethics and safeguards and make the most of it for the augmentation because there are benefits as well to AI. Um, but putting that aside, my worry is that the focus is so much on the machines that we forget humanity, what we as humans need to do so that decision-making remains um, you know, effective. So what are humans good at in decision-making? And then we'll kind of wrap up. I don't want to you know, monopolize it. I'd love to get your thoughts as well and reactions. But basically, kinesthetic intelligence, right? You use your temporal lobe, timing, your senses, and all that. Emotional intelligence, we have instinct, we have intuition, feeling, self-awareness, consciousness. And you don't need algorithms for, you know, it's not the prefrontal cortex where you kind of have that emotional intelligence. Now, the one thing with what we're talking about, though, is for strategic decision-making, which is our topic, complex systems. In that quadrant of David Snowden's Kinevan framework, where there are those unknown unknowns, Computers aren't that good yet at complex because it's not linear, because uh, there's no date on the future, it's unpredictable, because cause and effect is not determinate, etc. But but with natural language processing and machine learning, it's emergent. It's quite good at being emergent because it's everything immediately is kind of taken into account. So the machines are learning fast and potentially encroaching, or even if they're not, are being delegated authority to process things and make decisions, even when it should really be that the humans keep the edge. The problem is that if the humans are not upgrading themselves to the reality of our nonlinear, complex, unpredictable world, if we're not changing the way leadership teams and our minds are cabled, if we're not changing um, the education systems, we're not good at making sense of complex. We're not good at processing and making decisions in those environments because we're linear. We don't, we're just not cable like that. And so long story short, when I think about the future of decision-making, I think more about what do humans need to do to upgrade their capabilities in the context of tech essentialism, where we don't have exclusivity to decision-making, where we're de-skilling by delegating authority to machines, and where those machines are moving up the value chain and learning every day. Are we? Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, uh, it's a, you know, extraordinary time to be looking at that. But let, let's unpack that and look at that. You know, I completely agree that this has to be about augmenting uh, human cognition and that uh, hum you know, the augmentation of human cognition could be partly in terms of, you know, that, that, delegation where relevant but it comes back to in a way the prescription prescriptive yeah. uh that you described mm -hmm. where the analysis is provided by machines but prescriptive doesn't isn't delegation it is prescribing something but you can still choose whether or not to take that medicine mm -hmm. if you're capable of making that decision yeah yeah so that's the so that's the, I suppose, the nub of that is that precisely when we start to have, for example, and you know, this this is partly a sequencing issue, uh -huh. where you say, first of all, AI provides a uh, recommendation, uh -huh. hopefully with justification or some kind of parameters and so on, and then human says yes or no, or with modification. Another uh -huh. is to, I suppose, you know, there's... Yeah, and various other sequences, ones where, you know, humans provide analysis and then, you know, get 
as AI to assess different scenarios or things like that. Mm-hmm. But what's the the nub, or you know, I suppose what are what are either the best way or ways in which we can then take that prescriptive approach, where they're getting some rich um, multivariate analysis by AI, but where it still remains ultimately human decision. Yeah. So listen. Um... I completely agree with you. Prescriptive is not taking um, autonomously a decision. It's it's providing the options to make that decision. Um, where I would um, add nuances is we're less good at bluffing than machines are. So several things can happen with that prescriptive, which theoretically is not the decision-making, but which can quickly become a proxy for decision-making. Number one is, um, are we overwhelmed by the complexity and are we actually understanding what the machine has done, what the machine is prescribing, and what to do with it, and our own situational awareness and understanding to make a decision? So... That does require us probably, we can see it every day, you know, when there was a pandemic, when there were a lot of the recent geopolitical events, when, you know, when we are in this environment, which is the reality of the world um, that is nonlinear, unpredictable and, and complex. It's just that the cost of making the assumptions of, li- of, of, of relying on assumptions is going through the roof. So we used to make the wrong assumptions all the time, but the cost of those assumptions were less severe. Now the issue is the cost of making the assumptions of linearity are, are wrong. We therefore have to have a different mode and acknowledging the real nature of our worlds, including in our decision-making, are we able to? Are we changing the incentive, the governance structures, the educational systems to allow us really sufficiently to understand what machines are doing, their limitations, whether it's garbage coming out, to understand the situations well enough? Um, And are we delegating sometimes things where we may not be better able to um, make the decisions based on the answers than the machines, but even machines themselves can make mistakes or can be wrong. You know, the algorithms, God knows what what happens there. So I'm not dismissive of technology nor of AI um, because there's a lot of miracles that are happening through that. It's like often it's it's the tensions and dualities and paradoxes. Um, But I think then if we move to your question around how does does one kind of manage that decision-making and what do humans do? Um, we can unpack that, but it does require, I mean, for me personally, I do use technology constantly. And I guess that's kind of what you're driving at. There's uses where technology augments us. And it's, you know, whether it's note-taking or translations of machine learning or transcriptions or indirectly drug discovery because... The farmers are using platforms with AI. So indirectly, one benefits and one uses it every day at the personal level, at societal level, etc. What I then try and do is really, you know, um, focus a lot on, and this is where I think humanity needs to do is, is you know, what we call the triple A, which is how to be more anticipatory and think about the future, because we need to imagine broader scenarios and we need the time to think of things differently to kind of unwind um we need to take a breath and and you know there's a lot of noise and overload as you know your book correctly points out um so you need to isolate the time to think about different things or think differently from the linear approach 
And I think foresight and futures is a good way of doing that. It's quite broad and that. You need to isolate the mind, sometimes even spending time doing other things to just invest 10, 20% of your time to, to connect the dots and see things differently. Because the same way of looking at things and developing more expertise compared to sort of, you know, being T-shaped or or benefiting from the compound rule of, of kind of investing in time, you know, you have to isolate your time. You have to isolate the breathing and the thinking differently, you know, whether it's Eastern philosophy with uh, Shoshin, beginner's mind, whether it's um, meditation. Um, and then you need imagination, inspiration to, to accept that the world may not be as it is and to be able to challenge that. But this is very different from the educational system, leadership, governance structures yes. and incentives that we're determined to do, which, which really give you a carrot to, to learn things for which there are ready-made solutions and answers. So the, let's, let's sort of get uh, real, real world. I mean, this, this, this is all important topics. And I think, you know, unpacking them as a, you have in your books, I think is really valuable. So you and I both work with boards and executive teams. Uh -huh. And so there's that's then you get personalities, you get uh -huh. uh, more or greater or lesser openness to <laughs> different ideas or to new technologies. Uh -huh. And so, what's the realities? I mean, have you seen any uh, boards or executive teams which have, you know, advanced? You know, have have superior or advanced or better or interesting uh, processes of decision-making? Or have you encountered any interesting, uh, any anecdotes to recount around how you have tried to get uh, groups to adopt, you know, better decision-making processes? Yeah, so you're, you're right. There's a lot to unpack, and I like the provocation around the, get, the getting real, right? Um, so I think... A few things. First of all, is that it's it's hard. Um, you're talking about changing mindsets, ways going against how we're cabled to think maybe more linearly. So it's it's hard, no doubt about that. That's why these are complex challenges. That's why we've deferred them for decades, even though we knew the consequences for some. Um, so no doubt about the the challenges. The second element is that I think that. At present, unfortunately, quite a lot of organizations, countries, institutions are still business as usual operating mode in terms of relying on usual assumptions and everything, you know, treating the world as controllable, predictable, linear. Having said all that, I find that there are more countries that are beefing up things they're not bad at already in terms of being anticipatory, Singapore, Canada, some Scandinavian countries and that. And those who aren't are starting to realize the importance of that and, and being more intentional around them. US, maybe to a degree and, and others. Um, so this is around policy? Around policy. And organizations, likewise, around capacity building for, for better resilience, for being for foresight strategy. And I see it myself. One of the reasons I'm able to, to do what I do today, which you know five years ago would have been maybe a bit more esoteric, not that they weren't futurists or very bright people like you who have been doing this for, for a long time, but 
coming out of nowhere, out of 20 years of M&A to be able to kind of fit myself and get traction for capacity building, for anticipatory governance, for resilience, for strategic foresight. I'm not sure that these kind of topics out have had more demands. You know, you've always had a very small number of organizations that were well capable on that. I'm finding there's more interest in these and more and more, not just keynote talks, but actually kind of executive programs or things to pathways to capacity building. It's not easy. That's not because you do a good session, even if you're effective and people are well-intentioned, that is easy. But I'm finding a lot of interest in that. I'm even finding the same for education for that matter. I'm seeing private groups who have educators who are asking me to do sessions for them to think about how to better allow their, their students to, to be capable with these topics. And, you know, if you take the leverage points and Donala Meadows, when you're dealing with education and then policy and then the corporates, little by little, you're doing a lot with the, with the value chain around the drivers for change. It does have come back to a question. So the, the being anticipatory, which is one of our AAAs and strategic foresight and those capabilities, I'm seeing more and more demand for. It's better to have the awareness and the demands than not. So I think we're less and less relying on some well-known institutions who have their DNA in terms of these um, this way of being anticipatory. I think it's becoming more relevant to more people. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. So one of the challenges with foresight, uh, of the anticipation, so you can be in a, in a mindset of anticipation, and you can uh, get foresight methodologies and internal or get some great people externally and so on. But that's the, you know, always, always the originally the whole thing was scenarios to strategy. All right, we've got some great scenarios. How do we turn those into strategy? Yeah. And, you know, and I, I, that's something which I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And, but it does, and also the strategy is again around the decisions. And I, th- I think there's plenty of organizations, again, that go out and get some insights around the world far more than other uh-huh. organizations, you know, leaders do. And so they, you know, they're more open and they look for things and they get help and they build foresight teams and so on. Uh-huh. But there's still, how does that flow through to an actual decision? And so that's still this nub where you have, in, you've introduced more complexity You've made it harder in a way because you've got, you're bringing in more complexity, but that's still then, how do you, from that anticipatory frame and all the actions you take, how does that then flow through into a decision-making process Yeah, and a decision at the end of that? No, for sure. And that's one of the reasons why we don't focus, for us, the capacity building is not just foresight strategy or capabilities, because to your point, you need to think about the outcomes. So the simple answer is incentives determine outcomes. Um, and that's not not me, you know, it's Munger, of course. But ultimately, there's certain things in terms of the way the leaderships are cabled, the type of um, things for to achieve alignment, the way of achieving certain outcomes that come through um, incentives and other, other means. Um, if an organization is serious around 
changing how people think and, and behave and more outcome focused than kind of tick the box. We have a team that does a bit of foresight or whatever. Clearly, you go to the to the core of it. And that's where we think about things. We don't, you know, anticipatory is more this kind of foresight, futures thinking. We then add anti-fragile, borrowed from Nassim Taleb, but where we look at, you know, what is the organization? How rigid is it? How the decisions made? How, you know, how resilient to shocks is it? How does risk management work in terms of asymmetries? Um, are people still thinking that, you know, if it's just 1%, it's fine. But if the 1% ends the world or your company, it's an existential question. You need to look at the asymmetrical risk. Um, so anti-fragility, which includes ways of having skin in the game and it's linked to decision-making and it's linked to incentives, actually has very important elements, which we unpack quite considerably in our frameworks in volume two. Even though we didn't invent anti-fragility, I think we applied quite well as to how it ties in with anticipatory and futures thinking. Um, and then the third piece is, again, decision-making, you know, the scenario analysis and all that is very important. Everything is to inform decision-making today. So in coming back to the emergence, you know, if you take complexity, everything is emergent. The only the today and the reality exists. So how do you constantly kind of zoom in, zoom out, and what strategic um, an emergent agility do you have to zoom in from your longer term kind of envisioning and all that to emergence today? And that, again, has different elements that organizations can take on, the, you know, in terms of decision making, some decentralization, training of people, the right incentives. So there's no quick fix. Um, but I do personally believe that if you have certain incentives that are focused on on the right outcomes, that if people are more aware of it, that you bring in talent that's kind of more susceptible to, to adopt this, that you have an understanding of, of being anticipatory, anti-fragile, and the agility to kind of emerge with decision-making today, reconciling long-term objectives as opposed to constantly firefighting because you're anticipating it, you're seeing the world differently, etc. Those combination of things with agency and then alignment are more likely than not to help. But yes, it's not easy and not everybody is prepared to go through an understanding of the different facets to this. So, so can you give a an example? Let's 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 talk specifics. So, presumably, either something you've seen where there's there's public information, or if there's a client where you can disguise the the details. Just just some facet of whether whether it's worked or it hasn't worked of how organizations or leadership teams can change or improve. You know, what, what are specifics of how this has happened and how uh, we've seen, you know, shifting in decision-making? Yeah, so let's let's take something concrete. So I'm, for instance, um, on the Climate Intelligence Council of a, of a startup called Servist, which is a AI company which is um, focused on climate intelligence. What's climate intelligence? Climate intelligence is um, basically allowing you to make decisions today on specific assets or investments based on very long-term uncertainties. So what the state of climate and the weather and resilience needed might be in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So it's it's in the long-term. It's uncertain. And basically, you need to make decisions today in that. So it kind of fits quite well with the different parameters they basically you know have 100 plus um, climate scientists they've developed ai software 
Um, it's open source. And they basically spend a lot of time educating clients, the world, in many different ways, people like me, support, and others around what are the worldviews and understanding what's happening. They are then supporting with the disclosures, with understanding what's happening with the regulators in terms of future disclosures that would provide feedback loops, what are good disclosures, bad disclosures. They're helping companies themselves prepare for their accounts and all that with the required disclosures. As part of that, they are evaluating and giving a dashboard, which helps you without predicting because we don't have the certainty, but what helps you map out and plan the different possibilities for your assets over the next 5, 10, 15 years for the different possible climate eventualities and see what your competitors are doing, what your assets are doing. So if you're a hotel chain with 200 hotels, you need to decide today, you need to understand, we all understand that mitigation is, is not enough for climate. We need to make our asset base and our lives more resilient and adaptable. What does that mean if I have a supply chain, if, I have a, if I'm a city and I have infrastructure, if I'm a hotel and I have 200 hotels, or if I'm about to make an acquisition? Basically, that hits, I think, if you take you know leverage points and Donala Meadows in a complex systemic world, it's looking at all the different facets because you're a CEO or board or whatever management team, you're looking and you can see, okay, I can see the different exposures and the different risks. I understand that it's not 100% sure that that will happen, but it's a lot of information and things that can be really processed and mapped out in that. I see the different scenarios. You can decide how to make yourself resilient and or not resilient for the different eventualities, et cetera. That might sound basic. It's just capex or investments, but actually it's huge because the resilience of the world, if there's flooding, we've had big winds in San Francisco, suddenly even Salesforce Tower and all these buildings that are built with the best architects and engineers in the world realize that you have glass falling through um, 80-story buildings or 30-story buildings because of how strong the wind is, um, leaks everywhere, things collapsing. And this is this is California, you know, there are places where there's more extreme weather. So if you, if you multiply that across the world for insurance, for decisions, for companies, it's trillions of dollars potentially that I expose, not to mention the number of lives and all that. So this is for me, decision-making is not just kind of a company making decisions in a certain way, but it's also what they are enabling the world, society, businesses, organizations, countries, what decisions they are allowing them to make to be more resilient. And I think this is quite a good example because, you know, I'm not pushing for them. I'm not, you know, I'm rooting for them, but I'm not lobbying for, for them in that sense. But it really hits the different elements of long-term uncertainty, emergent decisions today that need to be concrete building resiliency into our, our systems and thinking, you know, if you have the information, the mindset, and you can see you're able to make the decisions, you're not relying on, you're getting the data to then decide what decisions to make. So it's not a kind of black box in terms of what information is provided, et cetera, et cetera. So I think as an example, that's, that I think is not a bad example. Um, yeah, well, certainly, certainly in terms of climate, I think that's a, it's a lot, a lot of uncertainty, massive impact. You know, you know, decisions now are critical. And uh, I think, as you suggest, I mean, in terms of having both uh, the right sorts of information and the frameworks to uh, 
assess it, I think is, is can be extraordinarily valuable. And the information, scope of information is, is critical. Yeah. So to round out, I mean, I, I'd, you obviously, uh, I would say thrive on overload. You, uh, you, know, you soak in lots of information, you make sense of it. You know, you are a foresight practitioner, amongst other things. So I'd like to just, if there are three things which you do in your practices and how you work with information that uh, you think might be useful for other people to consider and how they uh, in, interface with information. When I kind of saw your work, I, I was very interested because, first of all, the thriving on was something I had approached as well. But, you know, it's probably one of the biggest challenges today, irrespective of how one uses um, AI to support or not, just simply the noise from the rest, okay? And to your point, as as you professionalize foresight and, and futures, um, the trick is that you're seeing even more things, right? Um, because you want to go broad, you're going beyond the fringe, everything you know. So I would say the three things are the following for me personally. Number one is when I'm looking um, to spot the weak signals, is to to start allowing the themes to connect the shifting dots. In other words, um, and and serendipity actually has a big role to play with that, which is why you know for all the wonders of AI, serendipity is often where I get the greatest ideas from. I'm not you know so um, or I find them great. Whether the outside world does is another matter. But the the ideas I'm I'm proud and happy about often come from serendipity. So that's. As you're scanning a heck of a log, seeing things, it's, it's you know, what patterns come, what clusters, not in a kind of AI, I've processed a million random things, but really in terms of Euros or Sarah or me, Roger, hmm, bringing that, you know, connecting the shifting dots, what we call connecting shifting dots. So the next thing, and that is broad, you know, we're going outside of our field's ex expertise and everything we know. We're going wide, deep, et cetera. The next, the second thing is, I think, what thinking about what are the next order implications of that. At that point, I'm almost intentionally trying to drop the information, not to be overloaded. I'm trying to intentionally isolate myself with, you know, whether it's through meditation or beginner's mind, Shoshin and Eastern philosophy or how do I get a blank page to imagine and be inspired the multiple possibilities and think about the next order implications of what that means? There's no date on the future. So that is really important for me. And that is, that is really where I think humans, to our earlier discussion, need to enhance our capabilities of imagining the next order implications to avoid to enhance preparation and avoid surprise of things that that are necessarily um, rushed or or unprepared. And the third thing I think is, it's really to kind of scan continuously in a way to evaluate and compare how things are changing. And again, it's very subjective. Sometimes it's inspiration. Even it's not necessarily just monitoring data and creating feedback loops from what you know, the computer says, it's really thinking about how new do things feel? How might they compound? How might they impact, which then links to the next order implication. So, you know, for me, it's connecting the shifting dots, imagining the next order implications, 
And thinking about that in a dynamic world, because it's constantly, the world is updating itself. So our ideas and our thoughts and our perspectives of the world also need to be emergent and constantly updated. Yeah, and I think there's some great, and I think we're pointing to, as you know, as we were referring to before, the humanity has, and you know, this is what humans are good at, the way our brains work is around the cognition. And uh, I think it's that's fantastic to pulling out from the, this is the way our our minds can bring things together. So thanks so much for your time and your insight today, Roger. It's fantastic. And just to round out, where should people go if they want to find out more about your work? Uh, thanks a lot for that. So I think to follow all the content, it's basically whether it's LinkedIn, YouTube, etc. Disruptive Futures Institute. So follow the Disruptive Futures Institute and the handles on Twitter and Instagram are at disrupt underscore futures, but Google us and you'll be fine, Disruptive Futures Institute. And if you're specifically interested in learning more about the books, there's a dedicated website, thrivingondisruption.com. And we also have a you know detailed articles on every single one of the volumes to know what's in it, as well as podcasts and um, a lot of other information. So the dedicated book site, thrivingondisruption.com for the, the guidebooks, and then just generally follow the Institute, Disruptive Futures Institute. And um, we're trying to beef up how much is free and available for anybody who just wants to kind of just, just have it there. Fabulous. Yeah, no, great resources. And uh, we'll, that'll all be in the show notes. Thank you, Roger. My pleasure, Oz. Have a good rest of the day. Enjoy. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.